0: Well, I have really bad news this morning. Matt's kind of broken it a little bit, but part of the plan to uh, actually get to the 3.9 million dollar goal was that I was going to, under the favor of God, was going to have a perfect NCAA bracket in the Quicken Loans one billion dollar prize. And uh, I'm here to tell you there was a news flash: my bracket was busted on day one. I want to say thanks to Duke and uh, thanks to Ohio State even nebraska let me down they couldn't even get out of round 1 you let me down and so the bad news is that you must all give generously i tried to prevent this moment i really did but it didn't happen so there you have it god is sovereign we believe that we believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of god well one month ago uh, today actually we began this journey together of imagining a church of irresistible influence and I made this statement on February 23rd, and I want to read it to you again. I don't oftentimes get an opportunity to quote myself, so I'm going to take that opportunity. (laughs) I quote a lot of other people, but uh, who knows, maybe somebody will quote me someday. But I'm going to quote myself this morning. I said, this life is a series of moments. When we look back at our lives, it's moments that provide significance. We get this one moment to make a difference, and then eternity. There'll be a day when we talk about what we did, but today as we live, we are making the memories that will be our stories of tomorrow. And I want to tell you again that that is so very true. We are making those memories and those memories really are the moments like today that we are living and we get an opportunity to do something one way or the other or something in between. We all have moments. And depending on your age this morning, you've had either just a few or you've had many moments. But we've all had those moments. And if the Lord uh, gives us longer on this planet, uh, no doubt we'll have many more. And today represents one of those moments. I, I love to read the stories of the Old Testament. I grew up uh, going to church and hearing the Bible stories and That's why sometimes I break out into little courses that I learned as a child about certain Bible stories. And I'm going to do that again here in just a moment. So get ready for that. If you need your plugs on, get get those out. I mean, just think about David, the little shepherd boy. A little insignificant shepherd boy. And he goes and he slays a giant named Goliath. How about Samson, who was a strong man that literally ripped up animals with with his bare hands? How about Balaam, whose donkey talked to him? How about the peasant girl named Esther who would become a queen and ultimately she would rescue her people? Or how about the man named Noah who simply believed God, he had faith in God, and as a result he built a boat in the middle of a desert? These are some of the most exciting adventure stories that we could ever read and yet they're found in the pages of scripture and in recent years have become so popular that even Hollywood has decided to put them on the big screen. Many of these stories, however, I think vividly demonstrate how we should or in some cases should not live as men and women. I want you to turn with me to the book of Numbers and we'll be in uh, Numbers 13 and 14 and then ultimately we're going to go up a few books to uh, Joshua chapter 14, but we're going to be in Numbers 13 to 14 and we're going to look briefly at the life of Caleb And and it's at that point in Numbers chapter 13 that there comes a moment for Caleb. And what he would do, the choice he would make at that moment, would literally affect not only his life, but it would affect his family and generations to come. In Hebrew, in fact, his name means dog, which intimates just how much of an outsider he had been all of his life. And dogs in in the ancient Eastern culture were not pets like ours are. Uh, They were scavengers. They were wild and unwanted. And for his parents to saddle him with such a name uh, suggests that he didn't quite meet up with their plans that they had. Uh, That he was either inconvenient or he was unattractive or difficult and therefore he was rejected. And that boded badly for anyone in that day to have that name. Now there are Other literary scholars that would change a few vowels in Caleb and when transliterated to Hebrew would say that no, it actually means wholehearted. It's actually a better reflection of who his character ultimately ended up being. But uh, nevertheless, we don't know exactly why he was given this name. All we know is that one day Caleb was adopted into the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe from which the kings of Israel would come. It's one of these wonderful ironies, I think, that we see God's amazing grace and the sheer joy that comes when God does what he does so often, and that is he he takes those things that seem so insignificant, and he uses them. It's an incredible thing. This is one of our friend's character traits, Caleb. Somebody that seems so insignificant that his parents would give him that name, and And yet God would use him to do something incredible. When we first meet him in Numbers 13, he's a young man. He's only 40 years old. Now, I know depending on what your perspective is, some of you young people, you look at that and you go, 40, that's like ancient. I remember when my dad turned 40. And I thought, like, this dude is like, I mean, he's out there, right? But, you know, I'm 13, 14 years old and 40 seemed really old. How many of you 40 seems really young right now? Yeah, I know, 40 seems really young. It's all a matter of perspective. But when we meet Caleb here in Numbers chapter 13, he is just a young man of 40. In uh, Numbers 13, I'm going to summarize a lot of the story for you. The Lord comes to Moses and he says, hey, I want you to send out a team to go out and explore the land that I'm going to give you. They had left Egypt, they were going to this promised land, this land of Canaan, and God says, hey, I want you to send out 12 spies to go spy out the land. Now for the next several verses, we're going to read the names of men whose names we can't pronounce, and so I won't even try to this morning. You just do that in your own head as you're reading there, because you can't pronounce them either. But down in verse 6, we meet a man named Caleb was one of the 12. And then if you look down uh, at verse 16, you know another one was uh, Joshua. They were two of the 12 spies. Look down at verse 23. It says, they came to the valley of Eskol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. I don't know about your perspective of fruit, you know, you go into the drugstore or to the, I'm sure to the grocery store and, and you see grapes and sometimes you see some really big grapes. But have you ever seen grapes that were so big in a cluster that they had to be carried between a pole between two men? These were big grapes. This was a, this was a very, very fertile land. Verse 25, they came to give their report. It says at the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land. Now if you grew up in Sunday school like I did, there was a little course that we learned. And um, I'm not going to sing it for you because I want you to stay here throughout this whole message. But it goes something like this. Twelve men went to spy in Canaan. Ten were bad, two were good. What do you think they saw in Canaan? Ten were bad, two were good. Some saw giants, and we would always go big and strong. And then you you have a deep voice like that. That's kind of the way you said that. Some saw grapes with clusters long. Some saw God was in it all. Ten were bad. Two were good. Now, if I was in a really big hurry this morning, which I kind of am, we'd just kind of drop it right there and we'd move on because that really tells the whole story. They came to Moses and they're giving him their report. Verse 27 says, And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And you can imagine that uh, Moses is going, wowza, something like that in the Hebrew language. And he's going, man, I've never seen grapes that big. They said, the fruit's good. However, now, you know, some of you have been around here a long time. You know, I love that phrase, but God. I really despise very often that phrase in scripture, however, because that means something really good has happened. However. Some people are going to take something that's really good and make it bad. And that's what these spies are doing. Verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the, the, the termites, the, <clears throat> not the termites. Did you kind of get that? Do you ever read those words and just go, hey, just throw in termites? Nobody knows the difference anyway because you don't know who the Amorites are and the Jebusites and the Moabites anyway. And the Canaanites, they dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. (laughs) In other words, great fruit. Here's some awesome pomegranates and some figs. We're never going to be able to do it. Sorry, but thanks for the visit. And then there's this guy named Dog who shows up. Ten were bad, two were good. Look at verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb believed something different. Verse 31, Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. One Bible teacher said it this way, Some said we can't. Caleb said we can. Some said we should not. Caleb said we must. Some said it's impossible. Caleb said, With God there is no such thing as impossible. Impossible. Verse 32, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height and there are the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from Nephilim and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seem to them. This is bad. These are people you can imagine that just a a few minutes earlier, when they saw the grapes, we were are going, where's that? I'm going to get those. I've never seen grapes so big. Where'd you get the pomegranates? Where'd you get the figs? And now all of a sudden they're going, oh my goodness. The giants, in fact, had been well entrenched in the land for hundreds of years. They weren't new. They were renowned, certainly for their fierceness. The Moabites called them the, the terrors, the horrible ones. Another common nickname was the shadowy ones, the mysterious ones. And they were a terrible nemesis to any opposing foe. You recall Goliath measured nine feet, nine inches tall. And in the London Museum, in fact, to this day, there is a femur, an upper uh, leg bone from an individual estimated to be nine foot tall, and it was excavated in a region that was uh, very near this part of the world. So they were uh, rightly concerned about these giants. They were scary, but here was the bigger issue. One author wrote of Caleb and Joshua's faith, the majority measured the giants against their own strength. Caleb and Joshua measured the giants against God's. The majority trembled, the two triumphed. The majority had great giants, but a little God. Caleb had a great God and little giants. Let me ask you this morning, which do you have? Undoubtedly, even in this week or certainly in the weeks to come, there will be those moments when you are confronted with those, figuratively speaking, giants in your life. And when you are, you'll either have great giants and a little God or you'll have a big God and therefore little giants. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1 says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. This wasn't new for the children of Israel. They did that at the back of the Red Sea after they were coming from Egypt. When they got to the Red Sea and didn't see any way across, they started murmuring and complaining. It had become a hallmark of their people. Verse 2 And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Forget that when they were there, they were whining and complaining about being in the land of Egypt and under the hot sun and making their bricks. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Do you ever have a, have a tendency to exaggerate just a little bit in your life? Because if sometimes God wants to, I think, just step down and go, it's really not that bad. And these guys are going, our wives and our, and our kids are going to become the prey of these giants. God, why did you bring us out here just to to let us die here? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's so easy to be hard on the children of Israel, isn't it? And go, we would never do that. And yet, for many of us, we have giants in our lives, things that scare us and keep us from being everything that God intends us to be as his followers. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before the assembly and and they begin to 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 beg the people not to fear those who who are out there, but that the Lord is going to be with them. And look at verse 10, the congregation responds and and says uh, to, to stone them with stones. I mean, these people were serious, right? I mean, it'd be like me coming in here and telling you something that you didn't like, and all of a sudden one of you stood up and go, Let's stone him. That'd be horrible. That's a bad day at the office, right? Let's stone him. Verse 10, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. And when that happened, obviously, they weren't stoned. But God was ticked off. Rightly so. He asked Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they continue to disobey me? Look down uh, at uh, verse 20 of chapter 14. Here's the Lord's response. The Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of these who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and underline this in your Bible, and has followed me fully. If you don't get anything else this morning, take your Bible, if you've got a highlighter, if you've got a pen, and underline that phrase. It's the key phrase in the whole story of the life of Caleb. Caleb followed me fully, and as a result of that, God says, I'll bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Because here's what you're going to do. Verse 28, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in the wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephthah, and Joshua, the son of Nun." Imagine if God did that to us today when we lacked faith. Imagine if God did that to us today, if we were not willing to move forward in faith, but if we just simply wanted to live life by our sight. How many of us would ever live to see the promised land? Verse 31, but your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in and they shall know the land that you've rejected. Okay, you don't want my blessing? Then I'm going to give it to another generation, and that, and that other generation is going to enjoy what I was willing to give you right now. But as for you, verse 32, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, and you're going to suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. God is tipped. Right? He's put them right on the edge of something big, of something really awesome. He's delivered them from this hostile people, these Egyptians, and he's brought them all this way. And now they're right on the edge of seeing God do something really incredible and giving them a land that they did not deserve. And yet they've been disobedient. They don't believe. They want to stone their leaders. God says, you're going to know my displeasure. Look at verse 36, and the men who... Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. Look verse 37, look what happened to them. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Guess he didn't have much patience for those guys, right? Chuck Swindoll once said, I hate the guys that minimize and criticize the other guys whose enterprises made them rise above the guys that criticize. Did you get that? Write that down. I heard him preach that when I was just a teenager, and I've remembered it all these years, about the very few people that spend all of their time minimizing and criticizing and gossiping the other people who believe that God will do something big. It was those 10 spies that died by plague before the Lord. And Verse 30 said, 38 says, Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephna, remained alive. Twelve men Went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad, two were good. We can name the two that were good Joshua and Caleb. Can any of you name any of the other names without reading there in your Bible? One preacher said he would, at times when he was preaching in this text, get out his wallet and offer to pay a dollar for each one of the names a person could recall. He said, I never gave away a single dollar bill because nobody remembered any of them. He said this, we remember the people who stand for God, but the people who don't, we ultimately forget them. And Let me tell you this morning, as we get ready for our moment, that is true as well to this day, 2014, about 3,200 years later. We forget the people that minimize and criticize the other guys, the other people who say, but God. We forget all of those people. Ultimately, the people we remember are the people who stand for God. Joshua and Caleb did that. They stood for for God and and the others did not. And their collective voices, the loud voices of the ten, drowned out the faith of the other two. It wasn't just a matter of a majority vote, by the way. It was a matter of simple rebellion. When the people decided that they would rebel and not believe God, he put them in the wilderness doing laps for about 40 years until they all died out. I would submit this to you this morning. One of the greatest challenges we will face as followers of Jesus is choosing to walk by faith rather than simply walking by sight. One of the greatest things that could happen to so many of you in this auditorium this morning, maybe you've already filled out a pledge card, maybe the greatest thing that could happen to you because you have simply walked by sight would be to take that out, mark through that number and say, I am sick and tired of living by simply what I can see. I wanna grasp, I I wanna grip this thing called faith. I wanna live differently than the majority of people. That would be the greatest thing for some of you today because it is one of the greatest obstacles that we face as followers, of Jesus it is the obstacle to reject this idea that we just simply walk by sight and not by faith so 45 years go by they wander in the wilderness and life is tough (laughs) I've been in the bush in Africa for a few days and it's really tough I can't imagine walking around in about 12 you know 75 BC uh, in the middle of the desert it's tough now, if you're one of the disobedient people, if you're one of the grumbling majority, okay, you got what you, what you bargained for, right? But what if you're the dude named Dog? What if you're Caleb? And you're going, look, I was ready to go in. And as a result of this, I've seen that signpost before. We're going in circles. I mean, I'm, t- I'm ready. I'm re-. For 40 plus years, they wander. Imagine if you are Caleb. Many times he must have said to himself, when we finally do get back there into Canaan, that's the place I'm going to be. That's the the place that I remember going to. And that's the mountain that I'm going to... I'm going for that one right there. Let me just say this. I want to detour for just a moment. It it happens when you love to exposit the scriptures, even when you're you're just kind of supposed to be given a macro view. But I, but I I want to miss this opportunity to say to you men... I want to challenge you in this area of leadership in your homes. Joshua and Caleb made decisions which ultimately affected their family, and those other ten spies made decisions which affected a whole nation of people. And let me just tell you that if you buy into the idea that it is okay to live passively each and every year of your life, having good intentions that at some point you are going to reject passivity and you're going to take responsibility for spiritual leadership in your home and you're going to actually be the leader that God's intended you to be. You best grasp that, you best take care of it because here is the sad truth about this, that if you don't do that, if you are the passive individual who simply walks by sight and not by faith and you're not a spiritual leader in your home, you will not be the only victim as a result of that sin has its consequences not only for us but for those that we lead as well and men you would do well to start living in that way as a godly man in your home and being a a a, a true example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and being passionate about the things of God be a great moment for some of you to shout out amen because that's what we need that's what we need in this country. That's what we need in this church. We need men who are, who are committed to living those kinds of lives rather than passive lives like the majority. This brings us to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua is giving each tribe its special inheritance. Many years have gone by now. And in verse 6, it says, Then the people of Judah came to Joshua Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kizite said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me? Hey, Joshua. Woohoo! You remember. I'm an old man, but I'm still sharp. You remember all those years ago what God said to Moses and that promise that was made to you and I, right? We get that. That's kind of the context here, right? Look at verse 7. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. He's kind of sitting there like with the people. You picture that's the guy at the old country store up here. They go out and hang out at Carpenter's store up there, you know. They go out, they just sit around there, they drink sodas, they do a lot of other stuff, and, and they talk. It's one of those kind of stories that Caleb's getting ready to tell, right? I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again, and it, as was in my heart. But my brothers, verse 8, who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I what? I wholly followed the Lord my God. There it is again. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever. Because you have what? Holy followed the Lord, my God, and now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as He said these forty-five years since the time that the Lord spoke His word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I'm eighty-five stinking years old. If you could read in the Hebrew, you'd see that word. They don't translate it most of the time in the English translations, but He's going. Look, I'm eighty-five years old now, and uh, it's been a long time. I've watched a lot of people die. And I think this is the time. In fact, just yesterday, I went to the funeral of the last guy. He's it. We were just waiting for him to die. Now everybody that's left is Joshua and me and all the young people. And now I'm ready. Someone once said this, enthusiasm is not so much about age as it is attitude. I'm thankful for that. We see that over and over and over again here at Northwest. Some of our most enthusiastic people are the oldest people in physical age here. Enthusiasm isn't about age, it's about your attitude. Henry David Thoreau said this, none are so old as those who have outlived enthusiasm. When you can't get excited about something, you're old. Okay, And it isn't because you've lived a long time. Someone once said it's better to be 85 years young than 45 years old. And I would agree with that. One of the things I love about those that are young is that there's a belief that they can make a difference. That they can change the world. What I like even more is when I see people who have walked on this planet for a very long time and yet they still believe that they can make a difference. And I'm so glad that God in his sovereignty put some people like that right here at Northwest. I'm so thankful for you. You know who you are. I hug you and I love you all the time because I just, I love Sandy Russell. She's one of those people to me. I just love her. I talked to her already this morning. I just love her because she hasn't bought into the idea that, hey, because I'm not 35 anymore, I'm 55, right? Sandy's about 55. Because I'm 55 now that I'm, that I'm somehow useless. One, one person said this, living a useless life is an early death. You choose to be useless You're not useless because you're old in physical age. You choose to be useless. And when you choose to be useless, that is early death. One preacher said it this way, don't die before you die. Some of you, the best thing that you could do would be to grasp a hold of that idea. Don't die before you die. When we say we want to change the world, we can get discouraged because quickly we can realize that it's a big place, and the needs are immense. But what we need to grasp is that while we can't do everything, we can do something. We need to find our purpose, the place in which we can make a difference and, and, and do what God's called us to do despite those who would tell us that we cannot. And so here Caleb is, and he goes, I was 40, now I'm 85. Verse 11, I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then. That's a pretty bold statement, right? I mean, I'm 48 years old and I'm not what I was at 18. I wasn't any pinnacle of strength at 18, but I'm just telling you, like things change in 30 years. Amen. I mean, things, things start moving. Uh, they get out of place. They don't work like they used to work. You know what I'm talking about. Caleb says, no, not with me. Mm-mm. No, I'm as strong as I ever was. I can take you down just like I could have when I was 40. Now that I'm 85. I'm good, he said, for war and for going and coming. (laughs) Verse 12, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke of on that day. For you've heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Bring them on. As my granddad used to say when we'd wrestle in the four, put your dukes up. Right? we got a girl in our, in our church, high school or, or middle school girl. She's, she's, she's kind of a boxer. I don't want to embarrass her this morning, but she puts her dukes up. and she, That's what Caleb was doing. Put your dukes up. Hey, bring, bring those giants to me. I could take them when I was 40, and I'm a smarter guy now. I'll take them now that I'm 85. I'm going to get my land. That's like that conversation is going around when they're sitting there drinking soda at the old country store. That's how it's happening. Verse 13, then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Here you go. Joshua, I didn't forget. It's what God promised us. Verse 14: Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephna, the Kenzite, to this day. Because why? Because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. You get the theme? People that God uses in a big way really aren't that complicated. In fact, one Bible teacher said it this way: The complicated people are the weak ones. Beset by dozens of conflicting causes and motives, never quite knowing how to get it all together. They see one side of an issue, but they also see the other side. They see the advantages of one course of action, but they recognize that it might, not, might be better to do something else. Great people are not like this. They are not naive. They know that issues are sometimes complicated and that there are often different paths that can be taken. But they see the important cause and the best path, and they follow it consistently. What was the secret to Caleb's greatness It's not difficult to answer. Caleb had total faith in God. He utterly gave himself to God. No less than five or six times do we read that Caleb was wholly devoted to following the Lord. His life had no room for maybes or tentative let me think about it or maybe somewhere down the road I'll do that. He never had to consider how difficult or how scary the instructions of God were. He simply obeyed and he totally devoted his heart to the Lord. I love that. Someday if the trumpet doesn't blow, I'm going to die. And I uh, sometimes when I'm in cemeteries after funerals, I, I like walking around in the cemetery and kind of looking, looking at the things that are written there. And, and I want an epitaph, right, if it's good. I don't want, you know, I don't want one of those bad epitaphs that I've seen. I want, a, I want a good one. I'd like it to be something like this, just across the, across the tombstone or on the bronze plate down there. Brian was wholly devoted follower of Jesus. Or he was wholly following the Lord when he died. Just something like that. That's Caleb's significance. That's Caleb's secret, which is really no secret to success. What difference does it make when a follower of Jesus is wholly devoted to the Lord, to following the Lord and exercising faith? By the way, Caleb's faith had not only benefits for him, but it had benefits for generations to come. Because the text says, to this day, his people inherit that land. Tell him I want pepperoni and a little bit of sausage on mine. Okay, if that's Domino's calling, just want to, just something I was thinking about as I was talking there. Actually, bacon, bacon. I, I can't, the whole thing, bacon. I don't want half and half. Yeah, yeah. Let's go for the bacon, right? And dip it in chocolate and then put it on there. Don't know if that's a possibility, but if it is. For generations to come, they would enjoy the blessings that come from obedience. And further study in the Old Testament, if you're a student of the Word, further study in the Old Testament would tell us that many people were just simply casually obedient to God. Again and again in this section, we're told that people didn't entirely drive out the Canaanites as they were told to do. By the way, it's not just giants that keep us from moving forward and making an impact with the message of the gospel. Oftentimes, it's peace and comfort. We become satisfied with with just simply submitting ourselves passively to the plan of God in our lives rather than being wholly devoted. I think one day it will be sobering for some of us to look back at the time we've lived and see how easily we were satisfied with good things rather than God's best things. Don't be satisfied with good things. Want God's best. Don't don't be satisfied living in a level of mediocrity. But pursue God's best. I can't speak for you this morning, but I can speak for myself. And I'd imagine some of you have a similar, similar attitude. I know you have because you've shared it with me over the last month. I want a mountain. I want the mountain. I don't want to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. I could make a parallel at this point and say we could be in this high school for 40 years and we could want, okay, I'm not going to stretch that far, all right? I don't want to do that. I want the mountain. I want to constantly be mountain shopping. God, where is it that you want us to go? What is it that you want us to do? And when other groups of Christ followers say, we can't, we can't afford it, we can't do that, it's too big, the task is too great, I want us to say, yes, it is for us, but God, that's what I want to be part of. I want to be wholly devoted to God and his mission. I want God's blessing in my life. I want him to receive glory and pleasure by the way I spend each one of my moments here on this planet. One of my favorite uh, pastors, in fact, I would say a pastor to pastors, is John Piper. He wrote this. People who make a difference in this world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They're people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. He said, if you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks, which I'm grateful for. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and willing to lay down your life. For them. Which is why he goes on to say anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't about you, it's what you're gripped with. Let me ask you this as we close Are, are, are you gripped with the fact of who you are because of what Jesus did? Has the message of the gospel impacted your life in such a way that if you were honest before God, not before me, because I don't know your heart. All I see is your face and your actions. God knows right down to the depths of your heart. Has the message of the gospel so impacted your life that you would assess yourself and you would say, I am holy, I am fully devoted to the Lord. If you're gripped by that simple fact, then like the Macedonians as we talked about last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you'll be generous with your time, with your talent, and with your treasure. If you're not, you will think that they're yours, and you will simply use your time, your talent, and your treasure to amuse yourself until one day you die and you leave it all behind. Grace is what motivates us to action. When we believe that God is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do, then we will boldly walk by faith and not just simply by sight. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to do something that we've never done before here at Northwest and probably won't do again for several years. This is going to be a moment for each one of us, a moment that's on this day of March 23rd, 2014, that we have an opportunity at this moment, you'll look back, Right? You'll look back at this moment, and you'll either look back saying, that was the moment when I stepped out in faith, that was the moment I did nothing, that was the moment that I did what I thought I could do, what I saw I could do in my bank account, but it will be a moment, and it's an opportunity for us to be part of so much bigger than anything any one of us could ever do on our own. We're going to simply make an investment to further our influence for the purpose of sharing the life-changing message of the gospel, not only in this community, but around the globe. Here's what I'm going to do in just a moment. I'm going to pray a prayer of dedication for the commitments that we're going to make this morning. And after I pray, the band is going to play and Jesse's going to sing a beautiful song. Make sure you, you, you pay attention to the words. They're going to be up here on the screen. And I'm going to ask you as individuals, as couples, If your kids are here, do it as families, however you desire. We're going to stand together, and we're not going to come forward by rows. You come forward as God leads you to come forward with joyful, cheerful hearts, not under compulsion. And I just simply want you to place your pledge in that basket. And I want to make the most of the moment. I want to see God do something bigger than we could ever imagine. Let's stand together. I want to... um, thought a lot about this prayer of dedication. And this week, as I was reading in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 29, David is getting ready to take a pretty big collection to build the temple. And uh, he prays this prayer, and I want to read this to you, and then I'll pray. He said, "'Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty.' For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you're exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and it's all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Let's pray. God, we recognize this morning that we are investing what you've blessed us with to manage for you. And so it is with that knowledge that we give these gifts. God, we do not give them as owners So many times, God, our selfishness comes because we buy into the lie that we own this, that it's ours. And yet, God, we are simply managers who are making decisions how to invest based on the one whom we're managing it for. And that, God, we acknowledge this morning is you. What a privilege it is to give back to you for your kingdom purposes some of what you've blessed us and entrusted us with. We want to see the life-changing message of the gospel brought to each person in this community. We want to be a people and a place, God, of irresistible influence. And so we make these commitments today, God, not under compulsion, not grudgingly. We do so with joyful hearts because we have experienced grace ourselves and we so desire for others to experience the same thing. And so, God, I pray that you would use these gifts for your glory in this community and around the globe. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.